I think I actually half dreamed a cold open topic. Okay. Do you remember me telling you how in my youth I used to sleepwalk? Yes. I don't really do that anymore, but I do occasionally wake up in the middle of the night and jot down some brilliant idea I've had. Right, right yeah. And so the other day, I woke up to a note I had left myself, and the note read, E.M. Forster should be called Evelyn Waluigi. <laughs> what is that? What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. I think that works for a number of reasons. No, it doesn't work yeah. at all. It makes no sense. Did I read that somewhere? Is this a conversation you and I had before? Why would I write We've that? We've been playing on the whole Luigi Wario riff a bit. Equally, Evelyn War actually looks like Wario. <laughs> so if he's got to be someone's Wario, hasn't he? Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Chim Chimney over here is Daniel. Um, I was going to say Jimmy Crackcorn. <laughs> Jimmy Crackcorn is Abby. <laughs> thought about that song since I was eight years old. Oh, I've got it. Do it again. I've got it. This is perfect. Okay. Chim Chimney over here is Daniel. Smokestack Lightning is Abby. What is that? It's a blues song. But I was just thinking an American song about chimneys. <laughs> this is all gold. Would you like to do some of our letters, please? I bloody well would, please. We've got a letter here. Just a brief note from Dr. Kimberly Pager, Pager, I don't know, McClymont, who... It's good when you see a double-barrel name that's slightly more convoluted than your own. (laughs) (laughs) She has written a journal article that makes reference to our show, our podcast. Oh my god, we are actually featuring an academic work. Yes, peer-reviewed and everything. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Kim. That's very exciting. Yeah, she sent us a copy of her article. Do you want to say what the full title is? I'll read the DOI. (laughs) (laughs) Funny joke there, because that wouldn't really make sense, would it? It is called... The thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. Pathetic fallacy as a multimodal metaphor. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Yeah, everybody go and read that. Especially if you want to know about the use and abuse of pathetic fallacy. And if Uh, you want to see our name mentioned and then you can give up a big huzzah. Yeah, which you don't get that often with (laughs) academic papers, do you? We've got another letter from James, who is a teacher in Solihull. James says... Do you fancy coming to do a talk at my school? To which we said, very much so, please. And <laughs> yeah. we are doing that now. Daniel and I are available to do some outreach work for secondary schools or colleges. If you are in the greater Birmingham area, just write in and we can work something out. We've done that uh, with a number of schools, and it tends to be teachers who have found us through the podcast as well, which is yes. fun. This is just a reminder as well that 
here at Aston University, where Daniel and I teach, we have a new shiny master's module for English students. Uh, we also have an undergrad in English. So again, if you want Daniel and I to teach you, not just do a guest lecture, but actually teach you, please do come study with us. We also have a Patreon, which is fairly new. Uh, we have a few subscribers, so thank you guys very much. Yes, thank you. We have a couple of tiers going on there, so you can do the three... Yeah, I, I was very moved as well. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, sorry. <laughs> so some of our tiers over on Patreon are the £3 a month one, where we have some you know supplementary content for you guys if you want to see our beautiful faces on video. We also make videos especially for individual subscribers, or if you are really desperate to choose one of the texts that we do for a future episode, we do have a tier, a very expensive tier because we don't super want people to do this, but we have a tier where you could theoretically pick a text that we do. And you know what? If you pay us a thousand pounds a month, we will even read your shitty fan fiction in a full episode. Um, just consider us intellectual soldiers of fortune. Oh, we'll yeah. do anything if I the price is that. right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, Daniel, what is our text today? I apologise, because this is a bit of a cop-out. As opposed to all of your other very rigorously worked well, over... the monk one. Lest we all forget the monk one. Nobody's written in congratulating <laughs> you on that. Yeah, they're all just stunned to silence. <laughs> so, today's text is all about tricks, lies, hypocrisy, and theft, as well as the dangers and seductions of memory and myth. So I've taken a leaf from our text and stolen a set the scene from another book that I think interacts with ours, ironically, but also maybe a little troublingly. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields <laughs> called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair of master and a slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered. A civilization... Gone with the wind. No, Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> That's right, we're doing Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1984. So it should go without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. In terms of the content, there's a lot of racism here. I know this is a satire, but it's still, you know, uh, pretty uncomfortable. There's especially a lot of use of the N-word. Like um, 200 plus or something, isn't it? Yeah, as again, as I'm sure you guys all know from, you know, various controversies in the States that you read about in the news about should we teach this book or should we teach a, you know, censored version of it. There's a lot of harm to animals, axe murder, child abuse, kidnapping, lynching, imprisonment, snake bites, shooting, suicidal ideation, and forcible separation from family. And very willing separation from family. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to do some background for us? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know any of the phrases. Falkhorn Leghorn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to be such ass... If, guys, if you were from the Midwest or the South, I apologize. We, we're not going to be able to hold it back. I'm from the West Mid, so we've got some solid... <laughs> Go on, do your background. Yeah, okay. Samuel Langhorn Clemens. <laughs> he was a writer of comic novels and stories. He was a publisher, a journalist, lecturer, a bunch of other things that we're probably going to cover. He was born in Missouri. Missouri? Missouri in 1835. I am surprised you were not leading immediately with a Grandpa Simpson quotation. 
I'll, I'll be, be dead in the cold, cold ground before I recognise Missouri. So yeah, Clemens left school at the age of 11 and became an apprentice typesetter. And he worked on this kind of newspaper where he also contributed humorous articles and things. So it was a kind of introduction to reading and writing literature as well as a kind of uh, manual job. But then in the 1850s, he got his dream job being a pilot on a Mississippi River boat. And as we'll see, there's loads of kind of boat nerdery in Huck Finn, isn't there? Which I like that sort of thing, so that's good. Uh, but it's from this riverboat scene that he got his pen name, Mark Twain, which is what a kind of member of the crew would shout when they were checking if the river was deep enough for the boat. So two fathoms was deep enough for the boat. So you're like, I'm just going to mark Twain to see if we're still at two fathoms or more. Mm-hmm. Little history lesson, it's important to say that Missouri was on the frontier at the time and it had quite recently become a state under very acrimonious circumstances. So the problem is is that in 1819, Maine, which had recently been liberated from the oppression of Massachusetts, it was going to become a state, but the problem there, if you consider this a problem, was therefore that northern states would outnumber the southern slave states and so would be able to outvote the southern slave interest on things like whether slavery should be abolished. So they came up with this compromise that Missouri would also be a state at the same time and it would be a slave state to counterbalance Maine. But then that going forward, no other territory north of Missouri's southern border, the 36 and a half parallel, would be a slave state. So that was the 1820 Missouri Compromise and it saved America, didn't it, from violence and acrimony. It really did. Everything was well after that. No. You're wrong, Abby. There was... <laughs> you haven't heard of a little thing called the Civil War. So, in 1861, after years and years of squabbling and misery and everything and paramilitary violence, there was a Civil War. Twain volunteered to fight in the Confederate-supporting Missouri State Guard. Did you know that? I did not know that. But he left after two weeks. It all just kind of collapsed. And, and he, I don't think his heart was really in it. I think we... You know, <laughs> to, to be fair to him. He thought it was about states' rights. Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, States rights to do what? Well, exactly. And then after the war, became a kind of successful writer and publisher. He published Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs. Huckleberry Finn is a sequel to his 1876 novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. That was really popular and successful, but it was a lot more lighthearted than Huckleberry Finn, wasn't it? I haven't read it, have you? I read it a long time ago, I think as a child, yeah. and I just remember the painting the fence, and I think there's a bit where they fake their deaths. Yes, I think I knew that, yeah. And they have a little sweetheart named Becky, Becky yeah. who is real sad at their funeral, and then they turn up in all oh, the hijinks. Yeah. That's kind of cruel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we should say here, I think, that address the controversy. So Twain got a lot more radical as he got older. He was never hugely sympathetic to the pro-slavery cause of the South, even if he did enlist in the, you know, that's something for someone else to work out, the <laughs> square that circle. He ultimately became this kind of super liberal, anti-imperialist, anti-religion feminist type. So he was sort of like a kind of libertarian, I would say, on the sort of the right kind of libertarian. <laughs> uh, Huckleberry Finn, it does feel like a sort of gone with the wind type look at the anti-bellum era, but it's really about the persistence of racist beliefs since the abolition of slavery, isn't it? So yes. it's written long after the Civil War. But it's written about the time quite a bit before the war, like 20 years before yeah. the war. But it's also it's written about the time that Twain was living through when radical reconstruction had been squashed by white Southerners and Southern blacks were losing their rights again, weren't they? And yeah. 
you had the kind of rise of the KKK and again and things. And so he's kind of really writing about that. Yeah, I saw this a lot on the bad Goodreads. I actually really struggled with bad Goodreads because a lot of people took the racism in the book very straightforwardly. Mm. I think people thought this was, I do declare the book, you know, yeah. that, and that was where their analysis ended. They seem to not understand that this is a satire and that he has a very overt, like, racism is wrong. Mm. This is how it is structurally embedded. This is how we see, like, kids get indoctrinated into it. And the whole point is Huckleberry starts out, like, being half, quote-unquote, civilized. Mm. And that's where some of his racist ideas come from. And then the more he gets away from it, the more he takes Jim on his own terms. Yeah. I mean, it has a funny ending, doesn't it? The fact that it has that ending is a sign that one little boy being nice to a black guy yeah. is not gonna <laughs> solve the problems yes. and that's kind of also what he's saying isn't it but that I just I feel like this long-running persistence of hypocrisy and racism in America even if we've technically abolished slavery that said all the n-words are a bit grueling as a note this book is written in accent so almost everyone in this book is written in some sort of dialect we will be leaning into that with the white characters, but we're just not really comfortable doing a black scent that was written by a white man in the 1880s. So we're going to read any of Jim's lines verbatim as Twain wrote them so we can sort of assess the text on its own terms, but I'm not going to be putting a sort of black accent yeah, on it. It's kind of full on minstrel at times. It, it really is. Oh. We begin with this line. You don't know about me. <laughs> uh, without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. The book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth, mainly. So, in case you couldn't tell, the book is told from the point of view of our young hero, Huckleberry Finn. He's a poor white boy from St. Petersburg, a town on the banks of the Mississippi River in Missouri. A few Missouri? Sorry, Missouri. A few decades before the American Civil War. And yeah, we start on this kind of meta note, don't we? That Huck's the kind of author of his own book, but he's also aware that he's been the subject of books written by Mark Twain. This is just the weirdest opening. Yeah. I, I was really quite surprised when I read this. Was Tom Sawyer published then within the world of Huckleberry Finn? Like, that's, that's odd. Yeah. So the whole backstory, right? Because this is a sequel. Huckleberry Finn led this real hard scrabble life with his abusive drunken father named Pap. But Pap ended up, thankfully, question mark, drowning in the river. Or at least they figured it was his body. The authorities aren't too sure. So after Huck's adventures with his, you know, little friend, Tom Sawyer, in the previous book, Huck was then, you know, now orphaned, placed in the care of a respectable lady in town, the widow Douglas, and her spinster sister, Miss Watson. And they are both determined to, quote-unquote, civilize Huckleberry and save his poor lost soul. So this is where the book starts. Huck, and I cannot stress this enough, f***ing hates it there. This civilized way of life, he don't hold no truck with it, and he don't cotton to it. <laughs> so his his fancy new clothes are all tight and sweaty, the food is really boring, and, quote, 
When you got down to the table, you couldn't go right to eatin', but you had to wait for the widow to tuck her head and grumble a little over the victuals, though there weren't really anything the matter with them. (laughs) So that's his understanding of, like, saying grace. It's just rules, rules, rules all day long, and there ain't nothing to do. So he just, he gripes a ton about it. But I'm sure Missouri is fine if you're, like, in witness protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which he kind of is. (laughs) He's kind of weird, isn't he? Because he has these funny, melancholy, poetic moments as well. So when he's in the widow, Douglas's house, with this bit, Then I sat down in a chair by the window and tried to think of something cheerful, but it warn't no use. I felt so lonesome I most wish I was dead. The stars were shining and the leaves rustled in the woods ever so mournful. And I heard an owl away off, woo-wooing about somebody that was dead, and a whippoorwill, and a dog crying about somebody that was gonna die, and the wind was trying to whisper something to me, and I couldn't make out what it was, and it so it made the cold shivers run over me. So I just love those bits with Huck, just kind of thinking to himself. Yeah, he's also clearly picking up on other literature of the day, like this, you know, he's got a gothic element mm. going on. He's also, there's a lot here about like superstition and mm. folklore, so he's, you know, the idea of like oh an owl you know cries when somebody dies or a dog cries about somebody who's going Mm, to die yeah stuff like that yeah he's like a kind of vessel of like folk wisdom yes so one night huck sneaks out of his friend tom sawyer they have to hide in a bush when one of miss watson's enslaved men jim hears the boys scrambling around outside so we get this little kind of portrait of jim he's famous in the county among all the black people for being a wonderful storyteller but we also get the sense that he's a bit of a fibber, tells tall tales, and also he's very preoccupied with the occult, with kind of like magic and stuff. The boys evade Jim's notice. They go and meet up with a bunch of their other friends. They've all decided to sort of start up being a band of robbers. They all take up a blood oath to become highwaymen and kill the family of whichever boy tells their secrets. You know, it's all very funny. Tom Sawyer reads so many adventure stories, he kind of feels like everyone has to ape that. There's a bit where he says like, we gotta ransom them. I don't know what it means, but we'll ransom them till we kill them. And things like that, you know. He's very funny. So over time, Huck, he starts to get used to the widow's civilized life. One day, just as things are going really well, Huck makes a terrible discovery. There are some very, very distinctive tracks in the snow outside the widow's house. Footprints that Huck knows well. The footprints, they belong to Huck's abusive father, Pap. It wasn't his drowned body that the authorities found. So Huck figures, you know, Pap's been off on one of his really long benders, and he's rolling back into town to find his son gone. And he's a drunk, so I literally mean he's rolling back (laughs) into town. And worst of all, Huck knows that Pap must have heard that Huck has come into some money from his previous adventures with Tom Sawyer in the other book. And now all this money is being kept in a trust for Huck. Pappy's here to get paid. Um, Pap. He's a sort of a hermaphroditic figure, isn't he? Because he is the dad, but Pap is also the lady's boob. I knew you were going to make that joke because I tried to make that joke and I was like, no, I, you're going to get there first. I'm just going to leave it to the <laughs> It just came to me just then. Yeah. Oh, did you? So, but yeah, so queer reading, I think, please. <laughs> so, so one night he's going up to his bedroom and he finds his dad there lying in wait. It's a very sinister description, isn't it? His dad has all this kind of lank, greasy hair, ragged clothes, sallow skin that was, quote, white, not like another man's white, but a white to make a body sick. 
A what to make a body's flesh crawl. A tree toad what? A fish belly what? The bad kind of white is the impression I'm getting. <laughs> I didn't know there was a bad way to be white. Exactly, yeah. I do love that description, though. Oh, no, yeah, that's, this... that's tree toad white, fish mm. belly white. That's great. Huck's dad, he starts laying on him immediately. Ain't you a sweet scented dandy, though, he says. <laughs> That's uh, how I greet you every day. I go, well, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I heard you learned how to read and write and you do fancy city boy things, like use buttons. <laughs> uh, that'd be a joke. Um, That's why I'm laughing at it. Yeah, don't like that. You think you're better than me? You better give me all your money. You know, he's just really lays into the boy. So Huck says he doesn't have any money. It's all in trust. And so then there's this big court case that rages on about who has the right to the money. Uh, We're really going to gloss over this bit. It, yeah. yeah, it just turns into a legal wrangle yeah, in about, town. about who's going to be Huck's legal guardian. I mean, the novel kind of glosses over it as well, really, doesn't it? Everything's just crazy. And let me just also add that Pap's favorite tipple is a jug of 40 rod, which is a whiskey powerful enough to throw a man 40 rods, which is also 201 meters. I didn't know if you'd be interested in learning an Americanism. Yes, please. This is an authentic Americanism. When Bonafide. You, when you drink something really strong, you articulate that by saying, ooh, that'll make you want to slap your grandma. <laughs> but you can add that to your repertoire now. I will do. Slap your grandma. Wow. So one day, Pap kidnaps Huck from the widow's house, and he takes him up the river to this ramshackle old log cabin where no one will ever find them. It, this is basically like an Adobe stock photo of a shack, but I bet if you zillowed that property today, it'd be worth like $4 million. Mm. So Pap keeps Huck locked up and under constant surveillance and very regularly beaten. And Huck tells us this in this very plucky, matter-of-fact tone. Oh, poor old which Huck. I know. Yeah. That that was almost worse for me is just how like on the I almost yeah. said on the chin, but yeah. oh but you know, he he takes it all in stride. My pap came on to whooping me. It just <laughs> things like that in the most innocent way, yeah. Yeah, because we see that especially coming from the widow Douglas, how much kids get used to things, and so this is a completely normal childhood for him where he's like, Yep, another day, another whooping. Mm. And he even says how fast he gets used to being with Pap again. And you know what? Sometimes he even kinda likes it. I mean, apart from all the beatings and Pap's racist tirades, but hey-ho. Yeah, there's a very long racist tirade, isn't there, about a black professor from Ohio. Who has the right to vote. And yeah, to I don't want to, it makes the whole voting meaningless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he gives up his right to vote because, well, if a black man has it, it's, yeah, so, it's yeah. like those people when um, gay people in the States were allowed to finally marry, and they're like, well, I guess we better get divorced. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> God bless. Pap's treatment just gets worse and worse. And the final straw comes when Pat locks Huck up so he can just go out on a bender without worrying that his son's going to run off. This is a long bender. Yeah, it's like a three-day bender. Yeah. Hey, big bender. Measuring worth bender time. Um, <laughs> Do you actually... No, don't. <laughs> I was... The, the other day I was asking someone what constituted a bender. Do you have to drink in the morning as well? Is it three boozy nights or is it three boozy days? Ooh. 24-hour periods. I would guess it's fairly consistent drinking, so I'm going to say days as well, because you can have three nights out. Exactly. That that's I'm thinking that's not a bender. But it also depends how heavily you're drinking. I mean, if you start at five in the afternoon and you go till five in the morning and you do that three days in a row, that might be a bit of a bender. Well, well sir. Well, sir, that's a bender. Yeah, okay. It's the spirit of, you can't nickel and dime a bender, because, son, when you're on a bender, you know it. Yep, well, quite. So, Huck starts to get worried that his dad's, you know, drowned or something, you know, for real this time, and that he'll just kind of 
die in this isolated cabin, starve to death or something. Pap does come back, but Hook's like, it's just too dangerous, I've got to get out of here. Doesn't yeah, I think Pap has has some kind of like boozy psychotic attack as well and he's all running around firing his gun off and I can't yeah. Really, yeah, he's just he's a bad dad. <laughs> Huck can't go back to the widow because Pap will just find him again. Here's the plan. One day Pap goes off for the day and Huck breaks out of the cabin, kills a pig. I'm sorry. Yeah. Stages a crime scene to make it look like there's been a break in and that he's been sort of axe murdered. <laughs> Scuffle. He like smears blood everywhere and stuff. And like his own hair, he puts on like the axe. Yeah, he pulls a bit of his hair out. Yeah. yeah. Oh. He steals a bit of food, grabs a canoe, and makes it off down the river. And I want to add here that could, this book just has canoes on tap, doesn't it? If you, <laughs> you just if you live by the Mississippi, apparently there's just like canoes everywhere. But the Mississippi in general is this sort of like source of abundance, isn't it? Because Pat, his whole living is just made on gathering flotsam. Yeah. And make, catfish. Yeah. And he just somehow manages to survive from that. Can we cut back, please, to the staged crime scene? Oh, that little thing. That old thing. That's a little thing. <laughs> I just think what a fantastic Netflix true crime documentary this would make. Because I just want to see, like, a shadowy image and some voice coming in saying, well, this is the last known bromine daguerreotype of the victim. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the investigation. And the forensic team. At the end of one episode, you'd have the forensic team who, in the 1830s, would just, like, I don't know, have a little lick of the blood. Sean Nash that's pig. And that would be the end of the episode. <laughs> that's exactly how it would go. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, God, we're being so offensive. Every listener in the Midwest or the South is going to turn off in this episode. That's all right. I'm from know. hillbilly folk. I feel like I should be given yeah, a pass. Yeah, hillbillies. That is true. That is true. So Huck takes his canoe and he goes out to an island in the middle of the river. And he just sort of hangs out there for a while, watching all of his loved ones, and less loved ones, search the river for his body. I think that this is like every 14-year-old's dream, isn't it? That you, just, <laughs> you would love to fake your end up and then see everybody being like, oh, you know, you'd, you'd be so sorry when I was, yeah, yeah, I can't believe I told him to say grace, you know, yeah. <laughs> you'd be so sorry when I'm dead. Yeah. He's, he's actualizing the Poor Judd is Dead song from Oklahoma. Eventually, the searchers have to give up his body for lost. Now, I know there's no wrong way to grieve, but I'd be willing to lay dollars to donuts that Pap's in town trying to find a way. In a bit of a Robinson Crusoe reference, Huck ends up finding some delightful berries and things on the island. Huckle? It's not Huckle, is it? It's, it's not straw, Huckle. Some of the real... Logan? Yeah. Cloud? There are real berries and there are fake berries, aren't there? I was thinking like <laughs> Loganberry, Boysenberry, Huckleberry, all those like weird American berries. They're like bollocks, aren't they? They were just like made in Bell Labs or something. It's like fake. So he finds some delightful berries and things on the island and generally has a grand time. So if you go back to the Robinson Crusoe episode, this is when Crusoe finds the delicious veil. Huck says, quote, I was the boss of it. It all belonged to me, so to say, and I wanted to know all about it. That's a straight up Robinson, isn't it? Yeah. Where he says, yeah, I was the king of all that I saw yeah, or whatever. So I might as well explore it. Yeah. yeah. In a further Robinson Crusoe reference, Huckleberry gets his own Man Friday. Jim turns up on the island. Hooray. To reuse a joke from the Lolita episode, Missouri loves company. Hooray. 
So this is not the greatest scene with Jim because he's definitely got a slight minstrel vibe. Jim wails because he thinks Huck is a ghost. Remember, he thought Huck was murdered. And Huck takes, you know, a while to convince Jim, you know, I'm not actually dead. I faked my death. Turns out in the fracas of Huck being presumed murdered, Jim decided to run away from Miss Watson. And this is because despite Miss Watson promising him that she would never, ever sell him south, Jim overhears her one day saying, actually, I'm going to sell him down to New Orleans where conditions are terrible. Because you know what? I could get about $800 for him. What a shock. The slaver is also a liar. Mm. You know, like most of the South, she's going to cross her fingers when the Confederacy surrenders too. So mm. this money, though, is a bit of a revelation to Jim, who starts to see himself in a new light. He, he gets really proud that he's worth $800. And Twain writes, I's rich now. I owns my Seth and I's worth $800. So I just thought that was really interesting, the idea of like conceptualizing your own value through what somebody else is willing to pay for you, but yeah. like kind of perverting it yeah, in a way. Yeah. I wouldn't pay $800 for you today. Oh, wow. It's about laboring capacity, isn't it? <laughs> Which is also a good reason not to pay much for me. <laughs> I'm just going to preempt this here with a little note. If you have any measuring worths, please do not put them in equivalent gyms. <laughs> I think be... that would be in poor taste. Yeah. I'm just going to head you off at the pass. I'm, I've got no measuring of worths this episode. You may be sad what? to hear. But, yeah, oh, I'm that. devastated. It's not like every time you start up, I'm like a hostage. I'm like a political prisoner. So Huck is also keen on keeping Jim's secret. Quote, People would call me a low-down abolitionist and despise me for keeping mum. But that don't make no difference. I ain't a-going to tell, and I ain't a-going to back there anyways. This is the first instance of Huck's kind of cognitive dissonance, isn't it? That he hates abolitionists. Because he's been told to yeah, hate well, abolitionists. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah, because he's been raised in a racist society. But he's also like, too bad, I'm, I'm here, I'm with Jim, I'm not going to turn him in. And he, he hates a tattletale worse, somebody who dobs you into the authorities. Exactly. That, to him, is like the lowest of the low. And we get that a lot from the, the Tom Sawyer adventure novels and things yeah. about like codes of honor. So he's getting sort of two different forms of society that yeah. are like mutually opposed in this moment, and he has to sort of decide which one wins out. Yeah. Huck and Jim, they settle into a sort of quite nice domestic arrangement on the island, don't they? Jim's doing all his kind of, you know, his magic stuff, trying to identify signs of good luck or bad luck. He kind of reads signs in the world, doesn't he? Um, and he was kind of meant to think this is a bit silly, but then actually it transpires that he successfully predicts a storm and saves them from being sort of washed away. They hide in a cave on the island. And we get this quite nice bit, this quite nice little domestic scene. Jim, this is nice, I says. Uh, this is what Huck is saying. I wouldn't want to be nowhere else but here. Pass me a, along another hunk of fish and some hot cornbread. So that's having a pretty nice life on that island. <laughs> um, Detritus is just constantly coming down the river. They find this piece of, like, raft, a big chunk of raft that they start fixing up. And, you know, that's going to be their sort of future vessel. They also find the remains of a broken up house floating in the river. And they kind of loot it for knives and sort of stuff like that don't they like, oh gathering their treasures like the little mermaid exactly just like the little mermaid but there's a dead guy in there oh oh uh, um not like the little mermaid jim's like don't look at that huck doesn't so it's a bit of a paternal moment from jim there so yeah probably nothing going on from that guy he's a dead body that's been shot loads of times jim jim's just being protective it's not there's no particular reason surely to not let huck see whack a foreshadowing horn in there for that dead body please sure 
and thank you. Jim's real responsible because I think my first reaction would be, hey kid, you want to see a dead body? <laughs> exactly, yeah. You were, I like it that Jim calls Huck honey. Oh yeah, that is quite sweet, isn't it? That is cute. Yeah. That's a very American thing. There, there are very few people I would let call me honey. Right. Jim, truck stop waitresses, Dolly Parton. Winnie the Pooh. No. Okay. Pantsless bastard doesn't get it. <laughs> he doesn't get a pass. So after some nice island living, Jim and Huck eventually want to get some intel on how Huck's murder investigation is going. So they dress Huck up as a girl with some clothes that they found, you know, when they were scavenging the river. And they're like, okay, you're going to go into a nearby town, obviously not the one Huck's from, uh, and you'll be able to, you know, go in without raising suspicion if you're dressed up as, like, little Sally May or whatever the Mm -hmm. hell name he goes by. He ends up meeting a local random woman who's like oh come in and you know I'll, I'll feed you they sit and they visit for a spell talk eventually comes around to that huckleberry finn boy's supposed murder in the next town over now some people he learns thinks huck's father did it so he could get huck's money without the long custody lawsuit and it makes it more suspicious because pap has subsequently gone missing and mm. has a bounty out on his head other people have- the chocolate bar oh like a reward <laughs> In the U.S., we call that chocolate bar a Mounds. Or an Almond Joy, if you want an almond in it. Mounds? Mm-hmm. That's horrible. But some other people have noticed that Jim has suddenly disappeared as well, and they think maybe he murdered Huck, and we're going to track him down, and we'll form a lynch mob as soon as he's located. So this local woman also says, you know what, there's this island nearby, meaning the island mm. where Huck and Jim are hiding out, and Nobody ever goes on that island, but I have seen smoke from a campfire there the other day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that runaway slave Jim is. And maybe I'll send my husband over to check it out and we'll uh, we'll collect the bounty. What, a chocolate bar? Yeah. It's very, very low. I mean, you know, local government, they don't have much of a budget. So we'll give you a bounty and if you catch this guy you get a bounty <laughs> I can't believe it I'm worth a bounty <laughs> Huck is bad at playing a girl it may surprise you to know we haven't even talked about the fact that Huck is constantly smoking a pipe <laughs> which I suppose is kind of going all the way back to the colour purple women can smoke pipes can't they they can there's nothing wrong with it so the woman has kind of sussed out pretty quickly that he's a boy but she doesn't piece together that he's that boy the murdered boy Huckabry Finn so Huck's like, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a runaway apprentice from a cruel farmer. And she's like, there ain't no harm in it. You've been treated bad, and you made your mind a cup. Bless you, child, I won't tell on you. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because she's also interested in dobbing in Jim as a runaway slave. So it's all right to be a runaway apprentice. She's like, yeah, I'll help you out like a girl. Okay, groomer, teaching our children to be better transes. Exactly, it's dodgy, isn't it? <laughs> this in the, this, no wonder people are trying to ban this book. Um, yeah. Uh, Huck's like, th- you know, th- thinking you kindly, ma'am, for your lesson. And then he runs back to the island and finds that the woman's husband hasn't yet made it there. So he and Jim are like, you know, cheese it. We've got to get on the raft and also our little canoe that's attached. It's like a lifeboat, isn't it? That's attached to the raft. Let's get out of here. Cheese it? It's the fuzz? Is that what you're going yeah. for? <laughs> they set off floating down river and that's their new life that's the end of act one so huck and jim realize they kind of need a little bit of a plan you know they can't do this forever so here's what they're going to do they're going to float down to where the mississippi meets the ohio river and then they're going to get on a steamboat going up to the free states and that'll put a lot of distance between them and their hometown 
Huck starts to have an attack of conscience for helping Jim run away. Worse still, Jim says once he's in a free state, he's going to work hard and save all of his money to, like, Venmo his wife her freedom. And once she's free, they're both going to work to Venmo their children out of slavery. Mm. And guess what? If their master refuses to sell them, Jim will just find an abolitionist to steal them north. Huck says... It most froze me to hear such talk. He wouldn't ever dare to talk such talk in his life before. Just see what a difference it made to him the minute he judged he was about free. Here was this N-word, which I as good helped run away, coming right out flat-footed and saying he would steal his children. Children that belonged to a man I didn't even know. A man that hadn't ever done me no harm. So, quite the big, like, satire irony clacks in there so huck decides okay you know what this is this whole freedom thing it's getting a little bit out of control i need to do the right thing and turn in jim at the next town well as he heads off jim says that huck is his best friend quote da you goes the old true huck the only white gentleman that ever kept his promise to old jim so huck has a pang of conscience here but you know he he rushes off to his destination anyway So Huck reaches town, and as soon as he does, he runs into some really creepy dirtbags who turn out to be slave catchers. Okay, perfect. But oh no, now he gets guilt going in the other direction. There is no right answer. And the prefab I have here is, Huck is caught between Kid Rock and a hard place. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know who or what Kid Rock is. So... Huck knows it's apparently immoral to let a slave escape, but he just can't bring himself to turn Jim in. So he sends the dirtbag slave catchers a different way by saying there's smallpox in the area, so they book it. That was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> well, in all that fun, Huck and Jim soon realize that they've actually missed their connection to the Ohio River. Oh no! Yeah, overshot it. Is that serious? Well, you change lanes, don't you, and go in them. <laughs> The bit that flows up. Polo Yeah, the north flowing bit of the river. Uh, no, you can't do that. So there's no real way of getting to the free states by water now. They're just going to go further south, which is not really what you want to do in this sort of situation. <laughs> so ingenious. They'll never expect us to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they decide to keep going, even though it will be more dangerous for Jim. At this point, the raft is struck by a passing steamboat. Boop. And I'm sorry, is Steamboat Willie driving? Oh, yeah. <whistles> um, Huck and Jim, they're nearly drowned, and they're also separated. Oh, throw them in a bag of rice. They'll be fine. Yeah. So Huck is lost and alone and damp, and he's taken in by a local family called Grangerford. They're very kind to Huck, but he gets sucked into all of their local drama. And this is a very sort of like pop culture reference of the day to the Hatfields and McCoys hillbilly feud. The Grangerfords who have taken Huck in, they're in a sort of similar Appalachian blood feud with a family named Shepherdson. And no one can remember what in tarnation they were fighting about in the first place, but it was super probably something real important. They're posh though, aren't they, sort of? Mm. Colonel Grangerford, Colonel, he's in his white suit. <laughs> That's sort of like scuzz gentry. Uh, Daniel, there's only so much lipstick you can put on a pig. 
still got lipstick. Well, the point is, these two families are always shooting at each other in the street, and it's just real like bloods and crips shit. Only their names are too long, so you can't do that cool trick where you spell out your gang name on your fingers. Uh, hillbillies might have a few extra fingers. <laughs> there we go. That's for our <laughs> oh, we're for a lot of Kentuckians out there. <laughs> we're gonna get so cancelled by our listeners. I would like to point out that I am from the most inbred county in all of the U.S., so I want to talk. Wow. Another piece of the puzzle. Franklin County. Okay. My parents weren't related. Oh wow! Which is quite unusual from where I live. There, there was yeah. no relation whatsoever. That's a taboo. It is a taboo. You were an outcast in that community. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is. This place is just gagging for gentrification. (laughs) Plot twist. Turns out one of the Shepherdson boys is secretly obsessively in love with a Grangerford girl. I think he should prove his love for her by trying to assassinate Martin Van Buren. Eventually, Huck helps the couple elope and her family chases after them, but there's an ambush by the boy's family and a bunch of Grangerfords are killed. Huck also hides until the massacre is over, and he's found by Jim, who manages somehow to catch up with him and also to fix their damaged raft. Just, I just like this. We get some raft lifestyle stuff now that Jim and Huck are back together, don't we? We have to include all the raft stuff. I mean, it's such a huge chunk of the book. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, Jim and Huck, they just relax on their raft. They go swimming. They eat abundantly. Quote, corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. Where are they getting all this? <laughs> They're mudlarking for a continental breakfast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> for a croissant. <laughs> um, so, there's loads of soliloquies about dawn over the river and late night stargazing. Quote, sometimes we'd have that whole river all to ourselves for the longest time. Yonder was the banks and the islands across the water. And maybe a spark, which was a candle in a cabin window. And maybe you could hear a fiddle or a song coming over. It's lovely to live on a raft. I would love this. I love a shanty. Uh, I love me some squeeze box. They live in that little wigwam, don't they, on the boat? Yeah, they have a little, like, tent set up. Huck and Jim run into two con artists, and they tell them that they're secretly displaced royalty. (laughs) One man claims to be the escaped Louis XVII of France, who was the son of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, a boy who extremely provably died in the Reign of Terror. The other... Is Is that true? Yes. Incredibly well documented that he died in jail. Oh, right. Um, That's good, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The other man claims to be the usurped English Duke of Bridgewater. And I just thought, hillbillies, European aristocrats, what's the fucking Mm. difference? They're all as inbred as pugs anyway. Huck kind of suspects that these men are fakes, but he thinks it's safest to indulge them. So he and Jim start your majestying and your gracing them. (laughs) So they decide to team up and see where the river takes them. Yeah, they almost kind of don't take no for an answer, do they, the king and dukes? No. We're also on the boat now, please. (laughs) So, yeah, the king and duke have lots of cons running. So we get all these funny episodes in different towns that we're going to gloss over. So first they scam this Baptist revival meeting with these fake backstories about their lives of sin and then subsequent redemption. Then they think of a better con. They're going to put on a theatrical show. So they're going to play some Shakespeare, uh, so the sword fight in Richard III, and the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and let me add that the king is like a 60-year-old man, isn't he? So that's going to be a, quite an odd production of Romeo and Juliet, a daring production, some might say. 
They're sexual beings, Daniel. <laughs> we get some funny sort of garbled versions of Hamlet, Hamlet's soliloquy, and, you know, they're just sort of, they're clearly like frauds is the joke here. There's like other like sayings and aphorisms and bits from other shows yeah. and like the, what, like the Declaration of Independence, and they're like, yeah, it's the, you know, this famous soliloquy. Yeah, 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 just complete nonsense. I they are not to be an apple a day, you know, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So our new gang rolls into town at the same time that a circus is there. A lot of riffraff coming through these parts, that's all <laughs> I could think. And it sounds like the circus really knows, like, what they're doing. It seems like a really good show with, like, their shit together. And so they're like, ooh, this is going to be a tough act to follow. Um, it's one of the rare moments I actually wished a child would run away and join the circus for the stability. <laughs> the circus soaks up all of their business, so King and Duke only get about a dozen people at their show. All the audience does is laugh at their big tragic scenes anyway, so this it's not a hit. A quick rebranding is in order for these, quote, Arkansas lunkheads. They decide to write an original play, and they advertise it all over town as this very violent and racy thing, and oh, the ladies and children should stay away. Tons of people come, and when the curtain goes up, Huck is shocked to see the king go on stage, buck-ass naked, painted with rainbow tiger stripes, and running around on all fours. This is some shit you'd see in that Twin Peaks red room. Mm. Maybe this is my personal preference, or I'm just putting myself in the shoes of these Arkansas lunkheads, but that is simply too much entertainment. <laughs> the, the audience eats it up. They love it. But what they don't realize is that this is the only act instead of just the opener to a bigger show. Turns out that some sort of psychotropic Joe Exotic cosplay is not worth the price of admission, and the audience starts to revolt. King and Duke and, you know, Huck and Jim, they make a run for it, and they only just barely get away. But with nearly $500 in profit, they could buy a kind of fucked up iPhone with that. Mm. Well, with these two jerks, Huck gains a much greater appreciation for Jim and his kindness. Jim keeps taking Huck's shift on the night watch so Huck can sleep, and Huck starts feeling bad whenever he sees Jim looking kind of down. Quote, I knowed what it was about. He was thinking about his wife and his children, away up yonder, and he was low and homesick. I do believe he cared just as much for his people as white folks does for theirn. Mm. Oh. Are you getting sad? You're very emotional this episode. It's sad. It just makes me sad, Jim and Huck. Are you on your period? Is that what's happening? <laughs> Probably, yeah. There's a man, I've read it in the women's glosses. There's a man's <laughs> period, too. There's much more of it. <laughs> Huck also learns at this point that Jim's daughter is deaf, and Jim worries how she's getting on. So I, I quite like this. This is this is a way in which the text, like the form of the text, matches what's happening. So as Huck grows and learns empathy, the text itself gives Jim a richer backstory mm. and more emotional range. So like, the text is maturing along with yes, Huckleberry because like it, it, it's yeah. told so much through his eyes. Yeah. So the Duke and the King go to you remember them. Yeah, they're still there. They go into a village to sniff out a new con, leaving Jim on the raft, dressed in a wild costume with skin painted blue. Um, I'm sorry. I would love to watch his Get Ready With Me TikTok. Uh, and the sign says, Sick Arab. Uh, they put a sign up next to Jim saying that, so that will keep people away from him, stop him being hassled by white people. Sorry, what medical rationale are they trying to sell? What's the prognosis, Doc? Well, son, you got a case of the Violet Beauregards. Like, uh, what, what is the... 
What the, is this? Got the blues. <laughs> that's, that's a Mississippi River thing. Just <laughs> music. Oh, God, love you, Daniel. You're so dry. <laughs> um. So, Hook and the King are arriving in this town, and they see this young lad waiting, and he's like, Are you Mr. Wilkes, who's due to arrive soon? The king's like, I'm not Mr. Wilkes, but I know him. I'm the Reverend Alexander e Blodgett. Alexander. E yeah. And why don't you tell me what's going on? So this boy is waiting for a guy called Mr. Wilkes, whose brother in the town has just died. Mr. Wilkes lives in England, and so doesn't know that his brother's died. He only knows that he's ill, and they've been long estranged, so he's like yeah. running to make amends before this guy, Peter, dies. Yeah. So the king is like, ooh, you know... How tall was this guy? You know, any identifiable birthmarks, things like that. <laughs> uh, and the boy just gives him all this information, and the um, the king is like, "Great, uh, here's the perfect con." So he decides to like identity thieve the English guy. Yeah, he finds out that this Mister Wilkes coming from England has just inherited a lot of property, and, exactly. and gets this lad a talking about everybody. King's like, great, I can dress Duke up and pretend that he's this Mr. Wilkes guy. So he uh, he dresses Duke up in the finest clothes that they have, which are not that great. He teaches Duke how to do, apparently, a fake English accent, which I'm, I'm gathering from the context clues is about as good as mine. Uh, you what? Wait, what is it you do? You what? Yeah. Is I, it? I think this is all right. And, and he gets Duke to pretend to be this Mr. Wilkes guy. Huck thinks that this is the most disgusting con they've run so far. They go over to the house and they meet the rest of the Wilkes family. And the Wilkes family has no reason not to believe them. You know, like, we're, we are expecting our brother. You know all these details about us. The family doctor shows up and he immediately bursts out laughing. Who are these creeps? Why is one of them doing a Dick Van Dyke Mary Poppins accent? Sorry, but these guys are just not giving, like, generational wealth. These guys are clearly frauds. Well, the family does not like that. Hmm. Our English uncle, he knows things about us, like our names, and other very, very basic facts that he could have <laughs> learned anywhere. Eye colors. How dare you, doctor? <laughs> And to prove how much we trust this random man who came in with this basic information about all of us, we're going to give him all of our money. So the family just hands over six grand for the Duke to invest. And I was thinking, even assuming that he weren't a fraud, he could just be really shit at investing. Well, yeah. And they're all living in this family's house now. They've kind of really like set up shop there. Huck doesn't like what's going on. So he decides to steal the, the sack of the $6,000 and hide it in the casket of the dead man to sort of like safekeeping. I, I really wish that we could bring back having money in a big sack with a dollar sign on it. I um, feel like that's when America really went to, in the shitter when we got rid of those. Yeah. Well, I don't even like the idea of them having a single currency. I want to go back to the, the state's <laughs> currency days. So the idea is it will get buried the next day and he hopes he can write to the family later so they can dig it up. They're kind of hanging around a little longer than they should. Very like, oh, our crime empire will last a thousand years sort of thing. <laughs> Huck sees this all collapsing. He's like, listen, the, the real English brother is probably going to turn up any day. Me and Jim, we got to get out of here before shit hits the fan. Because he knows that if Duke and King are arrested, they're going to use the runaway Jim as a bargaining chip with the law. Mm. So, of course, Duke and King 
auction off the house and all of its contents, and sure enough, who shows up but the real estranged English brother? I, I would love it, though, if it were, like, the actual king of France coming to dispute <laughs> that title. Yeah, all this chicken's coming home to roost. <laughs> so, you know, we get a lot of finger-pointing. There's a whole bunch of he said, he said. No, you new people are the imposters. No, you're the imposters. Oh, my God, we've got to shoot the evil twin on the rooftop, which one's the real English brother sort of deal. Mm. Where did that cliche come from, the shooting the evil twin on the rooftop? Well, I was just thinking, well, gunpowder's from China... Right. But the roofs in China are all, well, sweeping, aren't they? So you wouldn't want to stand on that. So it's got to... It's got to be later than ancient China. Yeah. But I think in, in the Middle East, they've got <laughs> flat roofs. So maybe it was some time around then in the mid- medieval Middle East. Oh, you think it goes back that far? Yeah. Okay. Um, someone has an idea about how to solve this problem with the Duke and King and everyone. We've got all the old letters that the dead man received from his brother in England. So why don't we just, you know get them to do a sort of blind handwriting sample. So the Duke's handwriting doesn't match at all, but the noob guy claiming to be the brother, oh no, he's got his arm in a sling, his arm's broken. So they can't get a handwriting sample from him. The new brother's like, I know how to prove it. My brother had a tattoo on his chest. And the Duke's like, yeah, well, we all know that. It (laughs) It was a small blue arrow. The new brother is like, no, it was some initials. Great, okay, so that's... Surely that should solve it. The men who prepared the body for burial said there was no tattoo. (laughs) God damn it! So the idea is they're both liars and frauds. Maybe we should throw them all in the pond. Or should we first dig up the body and have a little look? Sure, let's desecrate a grave while we're at it, yeah. You might as well. Freshly buried, the the sod hasn't even settled in yet. yeah. Huck, this is going to kind of mess around with Huck's plan of hiding the money there for the family to reclaim it in the future. Does Huck have any hijinks, though, that don't include with, like, tampering with a corpse or falsifying He's a, a death? He's a morbid boy. Get a new angle, you little freak. Yeah, anyway, this is just a mad scuffle. Everything's going crazy. Huck just bolts and runs off, and he and Jim make a break for it. Unfortunately, the Duke and King catch up. They've escaped from the crowd and get to the raft. They're telling Huck off, saying, "All right, why have you left us behind? What's wrong with you? And Huck's like, oh, no, it was just a misunderstanding, Governor, really. And uh, then he starts, like, pitting them against each other. The Duke and the King start fighting with each other, but then they they get massively pissed and get on together again. What, you pissed by, you mean drunk, not pissed in the American sense of angry? First they're pissed, then they're pissed. Gotcha, gotcha, that clears that up. And they get on again. They have a new plan. So, right, next town, next con. They start giving lectures on temperance. In another town, they start up a dancing school. In another town, they give elocution lessons. Then they do missionary work. Then mesmerism, doctoring, telling fortunes, quote, and a little of everything. They couldn't seem to have no luck. When they're properly out of money, they start going into that little tent on the raft and whispering to each other, far from Jim and Huck, Mm. who don't like this new development. Do you think King and Duke are exploring each other's bodies? (laughs) (laughs) That's nice, yeah. (laughs) One day, Huck comes back to the raft to find Jim gone. He's been sold. Duke and King have sold him off and said, like, oh, we captured this runaway slave. You know, here, somebody can take him. 
Huck is like, okay, all right, this is it. This is the giddy limit. I need a responsible adult. So he decides to fully give up on his whole pretense of like, oh yeah, I was murdered in Pap's shack. He's like, I need to write a letter to Miss Watson, tell her I'm not dead, tell her what happened to Jim so she can come down and bring him back home to his family. He writes a letter to Miss Watson and it's a little bit of a religious experience for him. So he says, quote, I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I'd ever felt so in my life. But I got to thinking over our trip down the river and we a floating along, talking and singing and laughing. I see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping. And he would always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could to think of for me and how good he always was. And then I happened to look around and see that paper, by which means the, the letter to Miss Watson. That's going to dub Jim in. I took it up and held it in my hand. I got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I note it. All right, then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was an awful thought and awful words, but they was said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. So he rips up the letter and decides, even if it's a sin to let Jim escape, I cannot turn him into the authorities. Mm. So, you know, take that, Widow Douglas, where's your god now? Mm. But the fact that he thinks that he's destined for hell now, but he's still resolved to... That's quite a moving bit. It's a very... Climactic. That he sacrifices his own soul to save Jim. Yeah. Because he's not going to leave Jim in slavery with anybody else. He's going to find where Jim was sold and bust Jim out. So, Huck escapes the Duke and King, and he goes to where Jim's been sent, the Phelps Plantation in Arkansas. Oh, good. More characters who hold up their pants with a rope. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you're really trashing the, 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 the regions. It's not the... That's how they're described. The again, I would like to reiterate what rednecks my family are. I am allowed to do this. If I can poke fun at it. Well, that's me told. <laughs> um, okay, so Huck arrives at this plantation where they're already waiting for another boy to come and visit and they mistake Huck for this boy. They call him Cousin Tom and invite him in. Huck... He's just such a habitual liar that he's just like, yes, that's me. I'm Cousin Tom. Turns out that's Tom Sawyer. Oh, happy day. What a coincidence. Also, did he learn nothing from Duke pretending to be somebody who's about to arrive soon? Well, it was literally the last <laughs> yeah. adventure. Also, has he learned nothing from all of his adventures that <laughs> involve him lying? Uh, well, anyway, Huck knows Tom Sawyer better than anyone, so he has no problem doing a bit of identity thieving for a bit. There you go. That's pick your battles but he didn't know what well, whatever pretty soon the real tom sawyer shows up and he thinks huck's a ghost oh get more of that and he's, he's like you know don't you haunt me i never wronged you but huck's like no i just faked my death don't worry rad thinks tom tom loves this sort of thing this is exactly top tom's alley and huck's like by the way also i'm here to save jim you remember that guy well he ran away and i'm gonna steal him from your relatives super rad that's what Tom thinks. Super rad. I'll rob anyone. Yeah, so the, the game is afoot. Oh, good. The gang's all together. They got the band back together. Yeah, quite, yeah. Huck and Tom work out a plan. They show up at Tom's aunt and uncle's house, and Tom's like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be my own brother, Sid Sawyer, and Huck, you can keep pretending to be me. Huck finds out that Jim is being held in a shed with hardly any protection. Great. You know, jobs are good. And all Easy peasy. The, yeah, all of the above. Bob's your uncle. All he has to do is steal a key from Mr. Phelps in the middle of the night, and they can just run. Tom, 
He's got a few corrections, isn't he? He doesn't like the plant. There's no panache, no showmanship. <laughs> Tom reads a lot of adventure stories, and so is like, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pickaxe a tunnel under the shed instead of using the door. Then we'll saw through Jim's chain instead of just lifting up the leg of the bed it's attached to. <laughs> which I don't even get that. Couldn't Jim do that? Well, yeah, but I mean, the, the shed is locked. I mean, Jim's not trying that hard to of escape. Of course, no, yeah, but I would kind of would have thought he would have already done that, though. Anyway, we'll dig a moat, bake a rope ladder into a pie. We're going to smuggle that in. You know, by the way, this shed is one of those one-story sheds that you <laughs> don't need a rope got. ladder. Tom is so dramatic and obnoxious, though. Like, he's got to be the center of attention. Yes. He's what happens when you deflate James Corden. Ooh, casting. <laughs> um, <laughs> How old are they supposed to be? 13 or 14, I think. I was, I was thinking they were closer to 10. No, no, no. They're older than that. How do you know? Well, because he smokes. Are you, oh, 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 you want to go there, friend? My, I think my grandpa started smoking at like 11. There you go. So he's at least 11. <laughs> you can't, it's not, what are you talking, Daniel! Okay, you know what, you know what, if you want to read them as 13 or 14, fine, that's your prerogative, you can have that reading, just go and do it and leave me alone, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they start on this crazy plan. The boys make a kind of crazy stir around the place. There's a plot. For some reason, Tom thinks Jim's dungeon isn't dungeony enough, so he throws loads of rats and snakes <laughs> in there, which, well, it's kind of funny, but they're all kind of biting Jim, and like he's like bleeding all over things, isn't he? It's no, like, horrible. I, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I want to punt this little puke yeah. into the next county. Yeah, they really mistreat Jim, don't they? And Jim just kind of, for some reason, just doesn't really say anything about it. What are you going to say? I'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> so, anyway, Mr. Phelps is like, I don't know what's going on. The house is in complete turmoil. He's also trying to investigate Jim's provenance because he knows Jim is a runaway. Yeah. And Duke and King were like, oh, yeah, he ran away from this plantation. So Mr. Phelps is, like, upstanding and trying to at least locate. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's trying to get the slave <laughs> back. Yeah, so he writes to what he was told was Jim's original plantation that Jim apparently ran away from. And they're like, sorry, not our Jim. And he's like, okay, I've got to, you know, like, I'm an honest man. I'm going to put out an advertisement in a bunch of papers asking if anyone is missing a runaway by this description. So Huck is like, oh, no, this advertisement is going to easily reach people in Missouri. And Miss Watson's going to see it. And she's going to come down and get Jim. And my whole, like, faked death plan is going to be exposed. And they're going to return me to Pap. So Tom's like, well, that can't stand. Here, I have a really convoluted, annoying plan to just sort of up the ante and confuse everyone all the more. <laughs> so Tom starts writing these threatening letters to the Phelps family, pretending that the family is being targeted by the fucking mob. And it's like, for some reason, like, he's saying that Jim is owned by the mob or something. Like, I don't even understand what's happening. But, yeah, they start getting all these creepy letters in their post box. Yeah. Tom, I have a light suggestion. Stop trying to help. Yes. So, of course, instead of deflecting attention from the boys trying to break Jim out of the, you know, the shed... All of these local lads come by to guard the Phelps farm. And it, like, it becomes a whole thing. They have shotguns. And now it, like, is basically impossible for the boys to help Jim escape. The boys do manage one night to get Jim out. Of course, the local lads notice there's this big scuffle. And Tom Sawyer gets shot in the leg. 
that's not good. This is not how the game was supposed to go. I, I, he's probably, they're just like, uh, can I reload from the last autosave? Tom's pleased he says that. I'm so glad I got shot on this <laughs> leg. I just, I like to picture Tom Sawyer as a save scummer. I imagine he'd be like, uh, uh, back, back, other option, other is that option. the term for that? Yeah. It is naughty to do that, isn't it? Yeah. Tom is very seriously injured. So Jim sacrifices his chance to escape in order to get Tom to a doctor. And this confirms Huck's belief that Jim is, quote, white inside. The local hoodlums want to hang Jim. Take it as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Take it as a a compliment. Is that that because you don't see color? Yes. Yeah. That doesn't bode well for your RAF application. Oh, yeah. And when Tom recovers from his GSW, he's appalled to see Jim in chains. Oh no, my insane, pointless plan didn't work. Oh, um, by the way, maybe I should have mentioned, Miss Watson actually died months ago and freed Jim in her will. (gasps) He's been free the whole time. I could have said that earlier, but where's the drama in that? Where's the flair? This is... Pretty inexcusable. This, well, a lot of people don't like this, do they? I read Tony Morrison say that Tom continually putting Jim's freedom off despite him already not being a slave is a kind of allegory for the failure of reconstruction after the abolition of slavery. Yeah, I could really see yeah. that. And also, like, if we go back to the relative immaturity of the boys, there was a point where they're playing, you know, cops and robbers and pirates and all that stuff, and it's really cute. Mm. And then you see that Huck has matured far and away beyond Tom. Like, mm. Tom is still very much a child mm. and a very privileged child where, you know, somebody's freedom is his game. Yes, yeah. So it's at this moment that Tom's Aunt Polly from, you know, their hometown shows up after she's been, you know, understandably receiving the most insane letters from her relatives mm-hmm. down south. You know, there's there's some escaped slave. Apparently Tom and his brother Sid are there. What? There are snakes and rats. But Sid's and, here. But yeah, exactly. So she's like, okay, I need to go, you know, clean this all up. So she reveals Tom and Huck's real identities, and she confirms, yes, Miss Walton did die, and Jim is free. The Phelpses, to their credit, not only immediately release Jim, but they give him $40 to boot. Pretty good. And he says that this is actually one of his superstitious predictions from earlier in the book that's come true. He had predicted earlier on that one day he would be a rich man. So, all the fun is over, or is it? The fun was over about an hour ago. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Huck worries about returning home because he doesn't want to have to go back and see his dad. No, no, Jim is like, remember when we came across that floating house? Like, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Soon after we ran away. Yeah, we all remember there was a dead man in there, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, I didn't let you look at him. It wasn't just for standard traumatic reasons. That man was your daddy. <laughs> I didn't want to traumatize you. You're free of pap forever. Aww. So he's done a Tom. Isn't he? That's funny. He's done a sort of well-meaning Tom by not telling Huck that he was always free from his dad. Well, rip pap. He died as he lived. Stupidly. Huck, his only problem now is all these pesky women folk who are going to want to civilize him again. <laughs> Can't sarn it. No. I don't want to be civilized. I'm going to break west to Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. And that's the end. Tom, Tom might catch up with him. Who knows? Who cares? And do we ever find out what happens when they get to Oklahoma? The musical? There are two more. Are there? Books. Are there? Tom Sawyer, Detective, and... Are you lying? No. 
I can't. I don't know what happens in them. Tom Sawyer detective. Yep. Was detective a job that would have been around in the reality of Tom Sawyer's adulthood, the 1850s? The Pinkertons. That early? In Missouri? I don't know. I, do, I, I, can't, I don't know what to tell you. That's, that's what the book is. Hmm. Don't take it up with Mr. Twain. Hmm. Mr. Clemens. Hmm. So, would you like some casting, please? Uh, yeah, I, I sure would. <laughs> what is happening to by, you? By and by. <laughs> You're short-circuiting. Yeah, I think so. So, I was thinking how good a movie this would be if it were directed by Terry Gilliam in his Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas era. Mm. And I wanted to make this a really dark 90s comedy in that sort of vein with a young Ryan Gosling as Huckleberry Finn because he's, I think, charismatic enough. Child star. I think he had the range even back then. I want Macaulay Culkin as Tom because Macaulay Culkin has played a little sociopath in The Good Son. I've seen him do it. The age master. <laughs> Yeah, somebody else who's constructing these narratives. Yeah. I want Richard Pryor as Jim, and I want Stephen Root and Steve Buscemi as Duke and King. Who's Stephen Root? You would know him probably first from Get Out. He's the blind guy. Oh, yeah. That yeah, guy. Yeah, that guy, yeah. But he's well, like, he, he would be, like, playing every role in I this. I know, yeah. Now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. I was semi-excited to read this because Mark Twain was on the mystery train island on Pop Tropica, but I was heavily disappointed. One star. <laughs> you look so unimpressed behind you the camera. That. <laughs> and Pop Tropica is like, it's like an online, I think it's an online game. Okay. This author clearly doesn't know how to write. One star. Mm. No friend, it's in dialect. He doesn't talk right. <laughs> One star. Again, it's in dialect. It's giving nothing. One star. <laughs> um, right, are you ready for some analysis? Always. Child psychology, you had stuff to say about that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that for all that Huck, you know, rails against systems and rules, it's really clear from this book that children love structure and regularity, even if that structure is, like, along his father's more chaotic lines. I was thinking how, how adaptable he is to different situations. Mm. He just needs to know what the rules are and what to expect from them. Yeah. Because he doesn't really seem to do very well in times of transition, but he does settle down into routines very fast. Because he and Jim establish a very nice routine. Yes. And Jim is like a kind of paternal figure to him, but Huck still has a bit of, I mean, and we could go into why this is, Huck still has a bit of say in how their sort of routine is constituted. So it's also about having a bit of, not power, but a bit of kind of agency within that routine. I was also thinking about uh, Huck's voice and how it matures over the text. Like, the, this text really does 
grow with Huck's maturity. And that's why I, I hate that last Tom Sawyer bit. When yeah. Tom Sawyer shows up, the book falls apart Everyone for hates me. that bit. But that's You're because he's being dragged back down to childhood when yeah. he's clearly aged out of it. So it just, As are we. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it just feels stupid and unnecessary and stressful in a world where, like, there are real problems. So to have this guy manufacturing drama... Yeah, yeah. No, it feels crazy, yeah. But I feel, you feel a bit like, like you're going crazy, but I suppose that is the point. You're right, yeah. yeah. Well, you wanted to talk about his melancholy. I mean, is he is he depressed? Like, does this kid yeah. need to be on lithium? Yeah, well, he is like, he's a bit of a Hamlet type, isn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, sometimes he is just like a kind of naive kid or it's kind of like a noble savage at times, isn't he, who's just like an innocent... But I think really it's more that he's he's like a kind of an illusion of noble savagery, isn't he? In fact, he's like a very like damaged boy, but he's been damaged by so many different kind of mm. fields of power that it kind of leaves him outside of all of them. But I just I want to read this bit because I, I just love this bit, the bit when he just arrives at the Phelps plantation. When I got there, it was all still and Sunday-like and hot and sunshiny. The hands was gone to the fields and there was them kind of faint dronings of bugs and flies in the air that makes it seem so lonesome and like everybody's dead and gone. And if a breeze fans along and quivers the leaves, it makes you feel mournful because you feel like it's spirits whispering, spirits that's been dead ever so many years, and you always think they're talking about you. As a general thing, it makes a buddy wish he was dead too and done with it all. Hulk is such a sort of a uh, sad figure, and I love this really captures that kind of... um. The misery of a sunny day. You know, that sort of, uh, I don't know if I'm revealing too much about myself, but that sort of, the kind of darkness at noon of a, of a really hot day. And that, like, yeah, everything seems kind of idyllic, but there's that sort of just horrible dread everywhere. And I feel like Huck really speaks to that. I don't like that reading. I don't like that argument. You can have it back. Your, your seed will find no purchase here. <laughs> okay, well. I think this is bringing out something. The, the boy Daniel. Yeah. The the 10-year-old Danny. I was nothing like Huck, let's say that first of all. I well, wish I was like Huck. Because you were a city slicker, but I think you had the melancholy. But, uh, I want to get you and Huck on some Zoloft, is what I'm saying. <laughs> but I again, I want to point out that like he has these moments of incredible depression, and like I completely buy it and but a lot of these tend to be in moments of transition mm. it's when he has these moments of stability like when he and jim are on the raft or even when he's like oh i'm with the widow and i'm starting to get used to her ways and i'm going to school and it's really interesting mm. so he ha it's it's again the idea of like please can somebody just like give me stability i am a child and yeah. just you know how how much civilization or the 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 contradictions in civilization and the different pulling forces how damaging that is well yeah because I mean, it, like it's clearly breaking him from a young age i mean let's talk about just oh. briefly the line about the sound heart and the deformed conscience that's okay. what mark twain said that the book was about that huck is a good boy but he's been raised in a depraved world and so i suppose we are kind of speaking to that that he is a kind of vessel of these kind of social and historical contradictions. All right, well, let's let's segue in then to the racism of yes, the Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised by how many people were like, this is a super racist book, purely because the N-word is said. And I thought quite early on, Pap, who is the arbiter of what not to be like, is super, super racist. So I'm like, if, again, if you're putting a certain argument in the mouth of the most vile person... Mm one would, you know, sort of lead you to believe that the book is maybe telling you not to yeah. be like that. I would say, in terms of anti-racism, it's a bit heavy-handed. In terms of racism, it's also, you know, it's handed. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly explicitly anti-racist. Pap is 
like a psychotic and yeah. expresses these racist views in, a, in the most explicit way. But this idea that Jim and Hook have... Jim is a kind of childlike figure, a minstrel-y kind of portrayed figure. Is that a bit dodgy then? Well, I was trying to think about that, but then it's also this idea of a twisted civilization deliberately arresting Mm. Jim's education. Yeah. So, yes, to some extent, he and Huck are both doing the, the... They're both sort of portrayed in this noble savage sort of way. They're put on the same intellectual grounds. Is that infantilizing to Jim? Possibly. But also, Jim is not stupid. No. There are a lot of times where Jim, like, he's right pretty much all of the time. Yeah. And they sort of... Huck tries to downplay it of, like, well, my way of civilization is better. Yours is all magic and BS. But I'm like, Huck, you learn that, like, a lot of it is intuition that, you know, and... And, and also he participates in and that he participates wisdom in anyway. It. Like, he has his own version of it. Also, just Jim is, like, very... Paternal. Yeah, I was going to say, he's got a lot of emotional intelligence or whatever, and he <laughs> knows yes. to steer Jim and... I mean, not Jim, Huck in the right directions and things. And also the fact that they both manifest so much curiosity about the world. Yeah, when they're tr- they're looking up at the stars and trying to figure out how stars came into being, and, you know, they clearly want to know more about the world. So mm. I think it's he's more getting into, much like with Huck's education and moral intelligence, I think he's talking about the sort of poisoning influence of the the greater structural world on Jim. Again, it's the deformed conscience ideology at work in a kind of concrete way. There there were, I'm not going to deny that there were a couple of minstrelly bits that made me a bit uncomfortable. Definitely. I think it's mainly the dialect that does the heavy lifting on that front. The dialect feels very dated. Jim's dialect, that is. We have to address the big controversy the the use of the n-word yes well when i started reading it i was kind of like well i know it's in the book i suppose it's of the setting mm-hmm. but after a while it does get quite uh you know Upsetting. grueling yeah and, yeah it just it just kind of grates on you doesn't it and this is the big argument that they give which is you know the shock value especially today is part of the point because it's showing that children are taught racism this is is from the mouths of babes and we know yeah that huck has a good heart but he's learning all of these ugly things yeah and then has to you know unlearn them and i feel uh, correct me if i'm wrong but does the n-word diminish as the book goes on from (laughs) huck i um don't because i don't i don't do any of those sorts of readings that require proper effort <laughs> I feel <laughs> I'm sure you're right I, I could be totally wrong but I feel like I remember seeing it especially from Huck less and less and less yeah and I mean let's also acknowledge the fact that we're two white people sitting here just saying you know is this book acceptable to teach this is not our fight well yeah equally like I feel like it's a bit like with Huck isn't it like a, a taboo can become like a sort of proxy for morality rather than mm-hmm. morality in itself and yeah so I suppose Twain is clearly writing an anti-racist book but he does it in quite a an aggressive way, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. But it works. Well, I, I kind of feel like it works anyway. I was I started off reading this and I was a massive racist. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you wanted to connect this to Heart of Darkness. Yes, it is a Heart of Darkness type narrative, isn't which it? Which came about ten years later, a little bit more. Yeah. And again, a big river journey. Exactly. And a narrative that sort of maybe had good intentions. But also <laughs> but yeah, maybe conducted them in a racist way. The Things Fall Apart episode, Chinua Chibi wrote it as a kind of corrective to Heart of Darkness because he says, like, Africans get no voice in that. And in the same way, you could say that Huck 
because it's like a vehicle of Huck's psychological development, it's not really about Jim at all. And in that sense, black people are still sidelined in this text. Yeah, Jim doesn't have that much dialogue. I mean, I know that he's a constant by Huck's side, but we don't get that much from him. We get a little bit where, um, you know, Huck learns that Jim has a deaf daughter. Mm. and There's clearly a whole, like, uh, Twain at least winks at the idea that Jim has a rich interior life and backstory. Yeah. But we don't hear much from him. No. But Huck also never really talks about racism to Jim for all that Huck thinks about it. Like, oh, I do believe you care about your people as much as white people care about mm -hmm. theirs or whatever. I'm like, you could ask him about this, you know. But then that's that's where you get to the line because the whole point of this is it's like saying we still learn nothing. The Huckleberry Finn is about saying we still learn nothing. It's 1884 and we're bringing in Jim Crow laws and stuff. Nobody's learned anything from the Civil War. And everybody who was responsible for it has got off scot-free. And Hook is kind of like that, isn't he? That he's like, even a boy with a good heart still ultimately is in this yeah. racist prison. And, and we've gone on this incredible journey where you feel like Huck has aged so much and is, you know, mm. miles beyond Tom Sawyer. And then it has a slightly naff ending. Yeah. Where it's like... Well, I'm going to go back to my fantasy games. I'm going to go off to Indian territory. And it's, so you're like, okay, so you maybe you've learned to be less racist with Jim. Are we? You're just going to be probably as racist playing cowboys and Indians in, you know, native territory. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and it, it, he goes, he regresses back a little bit into being a kid. Yeah, you know? or just like says, like, I'm done with it all. I think it's more like that when I was reading that. He's like this has just been all too much. I'm just going to get out of here. Well, Which, but yeah. to suggest that Indian Territory is itself like a blank slate is exactly. also a, an imperialist or racist. And, and that's the Heart of Darkness thing, which I know yeah. I know this came before Heart of Darkness, but this idea of like, oh, we have to fill in the map. And it's like, you're assuming it's blank for you to mm. fill in that people don't already know it. But the crux of Heart of Darkness is that, the, you know, the twist <laughs> is that Oh, you think Africa's the heart of darkness? No, it's London. Yeah. And here it's the same. You think, well, like Indian territory or yeah. whatever is the heart of darkness. No, it's this, it's the deep south, it's Mississippi slavery. Yeah. Anyway, advice please. Daniel and I have just spent a long time talking about our interpretation of, you know, the racism in this book and all of this stuff. And I would like to invite readers where if there's a book, especially, you know, one that deals with race or whatever, Go actually find critics of that race who are discussing this book and see what they have to say about it. It's not the end-all and be-all, but I think it's really important that we actually hear from the people that this affects most and what their readings of it are. You know, a lot of culture and criticism is still determined by white people, and I just think it's good to undo that sometimes when, when you have the opportunities to. I thought you meant because Huck's white, you should read white critics. I do not. I, I'm saying if this is about blackness in America, there are a lot of black critics who I'm oh, sure have had right, a lot. Oh, I didn't. You, you didn't stop being so coy about this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the point is, a lot of these books, these classics that deal with race, a lot has been written about them. Try to listen to authentic voices, and you don't have to necessarily always agree. But I think it's it's important to actually hear and really listen to what people are saying. That's my advice. Right, so our clue to the next episode. Now, I hate to say it, but we have to take a short break from a normal episode next time because I'm going to be traveling in America at the time when we would normally be recording. On a raft, probably. Right? I will be on a raft, actually. I'm in Ohio. 
Maybe I could go down the Ohio River. Yep. But we do have some bonus material for you in the two-week period. So do tune in in the normal schedule and we'll have an episode. It just won't be on a piece of fiction. So we'll be doing a long Q&A episode with us answering your questions. Now, after that, I hope I'll have time to get back to normal recording because I'm actually working two jobs at the moment. I'm a senior bank clerk and sometimes maybe a house painter. Hmm. I'm going to say right now, I didn't know what that was. And I know what the next book is. So <laughs> good, good luck to you, listener. The main thing I kept thinking was Hitler tried to pretend to be a house painter, didn't he? Yeah, we're reading Mein Kampf yeah. next time. If you thought we solved racism with one episode, <laughs> you've got another thing coming. <laughs> right, so please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Subscribe. We are on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We have a Patreon, as we said. Um, please subscribe on your feed and rate and review us as well. And yeah, apart from that, I, I got nothing. Oh, no, that's it. Just cut me off. <laughs> there you go. Like a bartender, I need to cut yeah, you exactly. off. I think you've had enough sun. <laughs> enough of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is the overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.